0: This is the SciDev.net podcast for science news and views on global development. In this month's podcast, we travel to Kenya, where we learn new ways to curb emissions from one of Africa's big emitters, cows.
1: Even though manure is significantly better than the alternative synthetic chemical fertilizers, it does produce the greenhouse gases methane and nitrous oxide and loses nutrients when it breaks down, as a result of exposure to the sun,
0: And an update on quake-stricken Nepal, where the monsoon season is putting a strain on reconstruction efforts.
1: So last
2: year in Nepal there was very bad um, flooding due to monsoon. so I think that's a big concern of everybody's as well. That, that, that type of flooding will come back again this year and exacerbate the, the earthquake response.
0: We discover how adaptation to climate change doesn't concern human communities alone, but also animals and plants.
3: So what we're seeing is that species are in fact uh, moving, and some of them very quickly. So uh, in terrestrial ecosystems, uh, particularly insects, are moving tens if not hundreds of kilometers
0: over the last several decades. And we learn more about a set of technologies that, according to some analysts, could be the key to preventing the planet from choking on greenhouse gases. Welcome to the SciDev.net podcast where we explore the world of science and international development. This year the world looks at climate change with a sense of urgency driven by the need to reach a global agreement in December at the United Nations Conference on Climate Change in Paris. Over the past few months, this podcast has explored various ways in which humans are dealing with a warmer present and a hotter future. Today, we focus on a source of emissions that is often overlooked in the conversation around mitigation. It's livestock, the largest land-use system on Earth, which occupies 30% of the world's ice-free surface and sustains about 1.3 billion people. Now, globally, livestock is responsible for the 14.5% of all anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions, and cattle alone produce 65% of them. Scientists have been studying ways to lower the industry's footprint without harming businesses and food security, and they discovered that improving cattle management can help reduce its climate impact. But what does this mean in practice? In Kenya, scientists are getting together with smallholder farmers to determine the impact of land use and improve livestock and agricultural management. Their goal is to improve efficiency and reduce emissions. Reporter Sophie Mbogwa investigated and sent us this report from the field.
1: Rose is a 48 farmer in Kaptoma village in West Kenya. One of her first jobs in the morning is to cut the grass to prepare as fodder, For her livestock before leaving for the farm where she grows maize and tea, she carefully piles up animal manure which she'll use on the soil as a fertilizer for her crops. I practice mixed farming. I apply raw manure to my napier grass and my vegetables. I have never heard about greenhouse gases before. But I know that greenhouses are structures that people use to grow vegetables and maybe the gases are what's produced from using these structures. Normally... We direct the manure into a hole outside the shed, leave it for some days to dry, then use it on the farm. I have never thought any gas evaporates during the process. Even though manure is significantly better than the alternative synthetic chemical fertilizers, it does produce the greenhouse gases methane and nitrous oxide and loses nutrients when it breaks down as a result of exposure to the sun. Living a block away from Pamela's mixed farm is Bungay, a dairy farmer who tells me that he has been farming for over 40 years now. Bungay is among 1,200 households who worked with researchers to measure greenhouse gases in the soil. He explained to me how he's changed how he rears his cows to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I used to raise my cattle all over the place. After harvesting the maize, I used to pan the maize stock. This practice used to release a lot of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. After reducing the number of cows and feeding them on protein-rich foods, Bungay told me that his milk yield has gone up from one liter to about four liters per day. I used to have about eighteen cattle. Then I reduced to five. Started practicing zero grazing. Uh, milk production went up. I used to milk one cow. Just one liter. But I teaching us about how to feed our animals. galliandra, Desmodium, and Trichandra. One cattle increased milk production by about five liters per cow in the morning and about four liters in the evening. According to Todd Rosenstoke, an environmental scientist working with the mitigation lab at the World Agroforestry Center in Nairobi, in addition to burning and poor manure management, Cows in Africa have been found to be major methane emitters. This is because, as the digestive process in ruminant animals breaks down carbohydrates, they produce methane as a byproduct. Therefore, feeding cows on protein feeds not only increases their yield, but also reduces the greenhouse gas emissions per cow. The mitigation lab is trying to calculate where greenhouse gases are being produced and coming up with ways smallholder farmers like Bungay can reduce them. The
4: biggest source of emissions in smallholder dairy farmer is the cow itself. Cows produce methane as a byproduct of digestion. So most of the cattle in Africa and in Western Kenya are deficient in their protein intake. And so by increasing the protein intake, you're essentially increasing the efficiency of digestion. And so you, with that increase in efficiency, you increase the productivity of the animal and decrease the overall methane emissions per unit of product.
1: Under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, countries must estimate and report greenhouse gas emissions and removals from land use, land use change, and forestry activities toward tells me that scientists from a global network of similar laboratories under their standard assessment of mitigation potential and livelihoods in smallholder system, SAMPUs, are working together to develop comparable scientific standards protocols to help countries generate consistent and reliable greenhouse gas emissions data.
4: How you measure greenhouse gas emissions and removals has a big effect on the overall number that you get at the end. And so one issue is that nobody has standard protocols for complex and diversified farming systems that we often see in Africa. And so what we hope by creating consistent and comparable scientific protocols that we can utilize these laboratories to be able to generate the information that can help make climate change mitigation work for the rural poor, as well as help Governments make informed decisions about low emissions development.
1: Using manure not only adds organic matter to the soil, but also nutrients such as nitrogen as it increases soil fertility. But this is only achievable with proper manure management. So even smallholders like Rose and Bungay have a part to play in reducing their own emissions, but hopefully they can increase their food production at the same time.
0: That was Sophie Mbugwa reporting from Kenya on how smallholder farmers can make a real difference in greenhouse gas mitigation from land use and cattle breeding. Stay with us for the latest news from earthquake-stricken Nepal that is now under threat as the monsoon season hits the country. You're listening to the SciDev.net podcast for news and analysis on science and global development. The exceptionally severe quake that hit Nepal just three months ago took the lives of more than 8,800 people and left thousands homeless. Now a new threat hinders the reconstruction, putting at risk what remains of the country's infrastructure. The monsoons are provoking further landslides and making it difficult for aid workers and local people to rebuild homes. Reporter Kevin Pollock has been learning more.
5: On April 25th, Nepal was hit by a magnitude 7.8 earthquake. The epicentre of the earthquake was in Gorkha, a district in central Nepal, but the effects were felt across the country, causing avalanches, landslides, and collapsing buildings and destroying villages. A few weeks later, the country was hit by another major earthquake, Together, the earthquakes caused more than 9,000 deaths, 23,000 injuries, and left hundreds of thousands homeless. But now Nepal is faced with yet another disaster, the annual monsoons.
2: So last year in Nepal, there was very bad um, flooding due to monsoon. so I think that's a big concern of everybody's as well. That that, that type of flooding will come back again this year and exacerbate the, the earthquake response. So
5: That's Amelia Rule. An emergency shelter advisor for Care International. She spent two weeks in Nepal helping with reconstruction efforts, but it was a race against time as the threat of flooding and elevated risk of mudslides due to the earthquakes loosening the soil and weakening the mountain terrain.
2: Initially, in those first couple of weeks, we focused on shelter NFIs, which are non-food items. so. Initially tarpaulins, perhaps kitchen sets people who had lost all of their assets in the the house. They don't even have anything to cook in. And the second phase was to gear up the shelter response to be slightly more permanent materials. So corrugated iron sheeting was favoured by the shelter cluster around the government. And also lightweight material, so lots of people were scared of putting too heavier material on their roofs so it was ideal for the psychosocial side of of
5: shelter as well. But the levels and types of assistance varied across the country. For example, some communities have begun permanent reconstruction, while others in more rural and remote areas focus more on emergency shelters and equipment, before potentially being cut off by the worsening monsoon rains.
2: Depending on the context in each of the districts, the speed of recovery was different and it could vary from village to village so it was a bit of a constant juggling of meeting certain needs in villages which had been completely decimated and everybody was in shock to other villages which maybe wanted more permanent materials like CGI, bamboo and tools quite a lot earlier on and then balancing that with what the government felt was the best way to support um, communities as well.
5: Rescue and recovery are fairly obvious responses following a disaster, but can more be done to prepare ahead of time? Disaster risk reduction, or DRR, is a way to prepare and to mitigate the costs of destruction.
6: There are plenty of studies that show the economic benefits of doing DRR pre-disasters and the implications that has on lowering the costs, whether that's economic, financial or social, once a disaster has actually happened. So my name is Lindsey Jones, Uh, I'm a research fellow in the climate and environment team at the Overseas Development Institute.
5: Lindsey spent a year in Nepal working with the Ministry of Environment and is involved in efforts to inform policymakers and help shape the debate on disaster risk reduction. In March 2015, the World Conference for DRR met in Sendai, Japan and passed a new international framework to reduce disaster risk and help build resiliency.
6: Globally, we have a big push for resilience at the moment. This big narrative that everybody's using, which is relatively fluffy and a bit of a, a nice top-line thing. But the, the core message around that is that we have to think about multiple disasters. So the impacts that one disaster can have, and then you know, a few months later you have a secondary one that's completely unrelated, and that can actually cause you know, a much larger disaster than the initial one. Thinking about cross-sectoral issues, thinking about climate, as well as other types of stresses and the implications of that. But not only that, timelines... So not only short-term stress, long, creeping ones. So it's all linked into this this buzzword around resilience, and I think that's what the DRR and the development community are really tagging around, is that we need to be better coordinated across multiple hazards, across the mandates that different organisations have on humanitarian and development actions. The problem comes with the details. So people understand resilience in very different ways. Even from an academic standpoint, it came from in lots of different disciplines, whether that's engineering, whether that's ecology, applying that in a social system, and even in terms of coordinating what we would term you know, resilience building activities, um, is very, very different. Um,
5: the Nepal earthquakes were the first major disasters that occurred after the passage of the Sendai framework. And with the increased threat of flooding as the monsoon season progresses from June till September, Nepal offers an opportunity to see how recovery and rehabilitation can impact preparedness.
6: I guess the, the primary thing for Nepal at the moment is that the earthquake has created a situation where you have a lot of people, that, particularly the vulnerable, are, are severely impacted. Critical infrastructure are, are, are quite heavily hit. So you add on top the monsoon, which even in a normal year is likely to, to have you know, some rather large implications for development for marginalized groups, for people who are particularly vulnerable. Um, so this really...
5: But in the end, it may not really be about the contents of a political agreement. Amelia Rule believes that the most important factor in disaster risk reduction is the dissemination of information and resources to the people and communities most at risk, thereby empowering them to make their own decisions in their own self-interest.
2: The same before these people are very resilient, very hardworking, and want to get their lives back on track as soon as they possibly can. The main request from people was. We've salvaged all of our materials, we're ready to rebuild our house, we're happy to stay in this location, but what we really want from you is a safe design, and then we're happy to get on with it. So it really, I mean, I think people are definitely aware that what they had before is not, is not going to be sufficient as they go into the future, and I think that's really important as well because not everybody will make that decision to invest in disaster preparedness on that individual level because it is always a personal investment that's rarely funded by the government and it's whether they make that a priority or not
0: that was kevin pollock reporting on the monsoon emergency in post-earthquake nepal well coming up in today's podcast climate change adaptation is not only human business plants and animals have to cope too This is the SciDev.net podcast, broadcasting science news and analysis on global development. When we think about climate change response, we normally focus on the threat posed to humans and the ways we can protect our communities. But changing temperatures and weather patterns have an impact on all living things, not just on people. Well, multimedia producer Lou Del Bello has been learning more, and she joins me here in the studio. Hi there, Lou. Hi John. So, Lou, we all know that climate change impacts are felt by humans, but what's the importance of studying the other side of adaptation, specifically the behaviour of animals and plants?
7: Well, firstly, because climate adaptation is one of the many dynamics that regulate a planet's biodiversity, and this is a research field in its own right. And secondly, we are all part of the same planet, and we can't really foresee future challenges for humankind without looking at the natural world. Earlier this month I attended a conference Our Common Future Under Climate Change in Paris where I talked to Paul Ladley after his keynote speech. Paul teaches at the University of Paris and works on the effects of climate change on biodiversity and ecosystem functioning. In this interview he explains in detail how variation in natural ecosystems have a knock-on effect on human industry and well-being and why it's important to keep investigating and protecting biodiversity
3: globally. The way that species can respond to climate change is either to move, uh, adapt, stay where they are, or, or die. Uh, move means that uh, if the climate becomes unfavorable, they'll actually move and go to places where the climate is more favorable. Adapt means that they will uh, either have genetic adaptations or physiological apda- adaptations, so they can stay even though the climate is not particularly favorable, or of course uh, die.
7: And can you give us a picture of what's happening at the moment and what the recent trend is?
3: So what we're seeing is that species are in fact uh, moving, and some of them very quickly. So uh, in terrestrial ecosystems, uh, particularly insects, are moving tens if not hundreds of kilometers over the last several decades. In marine systems, we see some species like phytoplankton that have moved several hundred kilometers per decade over the last several decades in response to recent warming over the last 20 or 30 years.
1: When we
7: describe changes in the ecosystem, is that just about warming or there are other changes that might prompt species to move or adapt?
3: Well, that's a really important question. So a lot of the community is focused uh, mostly on on warming because it's the easy part to do. Uh, But in fact, we know they're very sensitive to many other climate components, so uh, rainfall is extremely important for them as well, changes in humidity, uh, all of those things actually can have combined impacts and in fact in the most recent IPCC report we said in fact many people are making mistakes about where they think species are going to move to because it really depends on this combination of multiple climate factors.
7: Do you think these changes are completely unpredictable or are to some extent predictable?
3: Uh, They're to some extent predictable. We have quite a few different kinds of mathematical models that we can use to try and predict where they can go, and we're beginning to have more and more confidence in those models. And on top of that, we now have actually data to work with because species are moving, so we can actually validate those models and see if they're working correctly.
7: Can you give me one example of one species that is moving or adapting in a particularly outstanding way?
3: So uh, there's been a lot of discussion of polar bears, for example. Uh, Heating has really fundamentally altered their uh, feeding habits. It's altered where they are found in uh, Arctic ecosystems.
1: How
7: important is biodiversity and biodiversity changes in designing adaptation for human communities in the face of climate change?
3: one of the things that we think we know is that uh, genetic diversity within species is really important for adaptation of, of species. And I'll just give one example that's really important for people. So um, trees are facing climate change, and in some places we even are beginning to see increased tree mortality that's related to uh, heat events or, or, or drought. Genetic diversity can actually help uh, forest ecosystems Um, respond to that climate change. And I'll just give an example. If your whole forest is made up of one genotype, and that might be the, the case where you go out and actually plant your forest, if that one genotype happens to be sensitive to high temperatures and temperatures go up, your whole forest is dead. So maintaining that genetic diversity is really, really important for adaptation of forest systems and that means, since we use forests for recreation, for wood, for storing carbon, that that's really important for people as well.
7: Do genetically modified plants and species in general represent a risk towards this natural
3: diversity? They represent a risk when people think that they can replace uh, the important natural genetic variability. So uh, what the biggest risk is if you think that well since a natural forest uh, might have problems in the face of climate change we're going to create a drought resistant uh, 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 plant and we're just going to go stick it out there and then we'll, we'll be better off than with that natural system. And that assumes that we know how climate is going to change and we don't at really small scales, that there's big uncertainty around that. It assumes that you've uh, correctly engineered that species to respond to all the constraints that are gonna uh, be imposed on it. There's a really big risk in thinking that uh, that, uh, a single genotype can take over from the tremendous genetic variability and species variability that we have in natural systems.
7: Are there hotspots of biodiversity that are particularly threatened, and that you can foresee will be in the next decade?
3: One of the areas in the world that's of highest concern, for example, is Madagascar. Madagascar has been isolated from much of Africa for a long time, and so the species there are unique to Madagascar. And at the same time, you've got extremely high rates of deforestation, uh, and that's posing really really serious problems for these species that are absolutely unique to, to Madagascar and it's this continued land use change in combination with uh, uh, climate change that are going to be a real double whammy for uh, the species on Madagascar unless there's really a fundamental change in terms of the way that ecosystems are managed on on, on that island.
7: Do you think that the protection of wild biodiversity should be a topic in the upcoming climate negotiations in December?
3: I certainly do, but uh, I may be biased as a, as a scientist. Um, uh, there are two reasons for that. One is that uh, biodiversity are, is important for humans, uh, and there are lots of examples for that. Uh, uh, wild diversity of uh, species that are related to crops could be really important for future adaptation of crops. And the second thing is that I would like to think that people are concerned about species in their own right and that, you know, maybe polar bears don't play a really important role in helping keep people alive. But um, it's really great to have species like that on Earth, and it would be really a shame that in the climate negotiations we don't think about uh, maintaining those species on, on Earth
7: And, John, what really struck me here is the idea that both animals and plants are somehow proactive in responding to climate change. They aren't just passive victims of changing ecosystems. In a way, that's the way natural creatures have always evolved by adapting to changes.
0: Only this time, of course, the changes are Mm man-made and it's incredibly difficult to estimate the magnitude of the impacts that they could cause.
7: Well, I think this might be the reason why the scientific community is paying special attention to how climate change affects natural ecosystems, not only because the impacts could be disastrous globally, but also for a sense of responsibility, understanding the damage we caused and try to reduce it.
0: So Lou, we have seen earlier how one of the ways to reduce the damage we're causing to the climate is to curb global emissions. And I know that along with adaptation efforts, mitigation is one of the biggest challenges of the future, particularly in the lead up to the climate conference in December. Mm
7: -hmm. And again, as well as in the case of adaptation, the debate unfolds around feasible solutions that can work both in the global north and south. But economies progress at different speeds And what works in the US might not work in Kenya or, you know, anywhere else.
0: And I imagine there will be other factors too related to the local culture, population density, geography, this kind of thing.
7: Indeed, it seems almost impossible to come up with a recipe that suits the whole world. Mm. And yet we have to try and find some common ground for action. In this respect, one of the solutions that were discussed at the Our Common Future conference really caught my attention. It's a very controversial idea and I wanted to question it. It's about a set of technologies called negative emission technologies.
0: So, what does negative emission mean in this case?
7: Well, it simply means that instead of not burning fossil fuels, we try to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. The problem is that many of these technologies tend to be quite expensive and very difficult to implement at scale.
0: But then why can't we just improve mitigation and reduce the emissions of CO2 instead of putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and then sucking them all out of it?
7: Well, I think that's a really good question. So I sat down with Pete Smith, an expert in negative emission technologies at the University of Aberdeen in the UK, to try and understand the potential of this approach, but also the potential pitfalls. pitfalls. He is speaking to me at a conference, Our Common Future, in Paris.
8: Okay, negative emission technologies are technologies that remove carbon from the atmosphere, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So they can include anything at the, at the low-tech end. That could be things like planting trees, afforestation, because that removes carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The trees photosynthesize, and it captures the carbon in the biomass of the trees. Um, other more high-tech options are things like bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. So you grow energy crops, biomass. And you then burn those biomass crops in place of fossil fuels. So you displace fossil fuels. But you capture the carbon dioxide that would otherwise be released to the atmosphere. And then you pump it down into the ground into geological reservoirs. And then at the very high-tech end, you've got things like direct air capture, which are chemical reactions. Which um, So you have a plant that has these chemical reactions going on. And these chemical reactions absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and you then store that carbon dioxide you 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 convert it into minerals and then you can store it as store it as a solid. So that's what the emissions technologies are. All of them however have downsides either in terms of the land that they use, the water that they use, the energy requirements or the costs. So some are very expensive, some use a lot of land, so there's no single negative emission technology that is a silver bullet.
7: So it looks like these negative emission technologies come with a set of caveats. Um, why do we need them then? And why are we not achieving the emission reductions that could avoid the, their use and their implementation?
8: So if our lack of, um, our lack of ambition over the past, uh, or lack of action over the past 10 to 20 years has put us on a higher trajectory of emissions, which now means that we need to come down further um, to limit warming to 2 degrees Celsius. So we may need emissions technology. The less we do now, the more we need to do in the future.
7: It looks like emission reduction technologies are rather easy to implement and rather feasible, whereas uh, negative emission technologies are much more difficult to implement and potentially much more expensive. So isn't it a risk to think that in the future, if needed, we'll be able to implement them at scale, even if we do a lot of research beforehand?
8: yes i think that is a risk and we know that the the potential costs of mitigation increase the further we move on the trajectory to higher emissions so any delay or any lack of ambition in the targets now stores up more problems for the future so i would agree with you that relying on those negative emission technologies in the future is a very risky business
7: however the main projection about the future of emissions from the energy sector include a strong component of carbon capture storage, for example, as part of the response to the current energy mix Mm -hmm. that will still include a lot of fossil fuels. So how do we bridge this gap?
8: So it will take time to to remove fossil fuels and and high-carbon energy technologies from the mix because we've got a lot of infrastructure that is currently dedicated to that and the scale at which we can implement renewable technologies or low-carbon energy technologies is is limited to a certain extent. So there will still be some fossil fuels in the mix. Um, There there are things like price signals. So if if fossil fuels paid, if we we had to pay as consumers... um, the The environmental costs of the fossil fuels, then they would be much higher. You could consider fossil fuels to be highly subsidized in that respect because we nobody pays for the environmental damage they cause. so you could imagine price signals in the future which made things like coal very very uncompetitive. We know that we have to leave a large proportion of the coal that we know is there in the ground. We can't do that still to be and still be consistent with a two degrees Celsius limit. so there has to be some change in the way that we internalize those um, environmental costs of the different forms of energy and this doesn't necessarily have to be something that increases the cost to the consumer. I could imagine with something like a carbon tax or a carbon price you may be able to reinvest some of that money in the the dirtier technologies into the new technologies so that the price that we pay for our energy could be round about the same.
7: Which makes me think about vulnerable areas in the world where we have political instability and we have An infrastructure that's yet to be developed so economies that now are struggling and need to grow fast and need to do it with cheap forms of energy um, are they likely to perform this transition to a low-carbon economy or if in the future this will be needed will they be able to implement negative emission technologies
8: yeah. yeah so some of the some of the um the lower tech ones i think are already being used so bioenergy maybe not without carbon capture and storage but bioenergy is being used as a technology to displace fossil fuels and afforestation is being used in somewhere or at least reduced deforestation so some of these are technologies that that help the atmospheric co2 signal so some of these can already be be employed for some of the higher tech ones i think that there, there needs to be As part of a global agreement, there needs to be some agreement about co-financing and partnership between developed countries and developing countries to allow the developing countries to move forward without going through the dirty technology first.
7: So I'm thinking, for example, uh, about Africa, which is rich in oil, rich in gas and in coal, Mm -hmm. and they're going to use it to some extent. Mm -hmm. Are you thinking that it would be good from December on? to create a mechanism that subsidizes the transition and implementation of technologies such as CCS in Africa, and how this would be received by the local governments.
8: Okay, so I think CCS is part of the issue, so we can capture the carbon from the fossil fuels. But more importantly, I think we need to we have to have that transition away from fossil fuels in the future. So for an African regional level, there may be there may be some potential to use some of that fossil fuel resource. But if we internalize the cost of that, then some of these some of these um, high carbon cost fuels become less attractive in the future. and that's where I think that even if you've got reserves there, We know that we need to leave some of that in the ground, in the developing countries as well as the developed countries. So that's where we need some flow of technology and finance to allow the countries in Africa to move towards a low-carbon future.
0: Well, that was Lou Del Bello talking to Pete Smith of the University of Aberdeen about the controversy around negative emission technologies. And that's all for this month from me, John Escombe, and from our team here in London. Stay with us for more news and analysis on the world of science and development. Until next time, it's goodbye. Bye-bye.